0: troubles, they are real. And I know you feel that God's forsaken you. But child, don't lose your faith. He is worth
1: never done this one in church before, but, uh, you know, during COVID, um, and COVID like scarred me because I'm, I'm, I don't am i know if it scarred anybody else, but I, uh, we we had to cancel church and we couldn't come to church and we did live stream and, you know, that was good and I enjoyed live stream, but, you know, it just wasn't the same as coming and gathering together yes, right. as a group of people and worshiping Jesus. I know we can worship at home. And I know we can worship to ourselves. We can worship in the car. I do it all the time. I did it on Friday on my way to work. About wrecked my car, driving, listening to Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. You know, getting into it, getting in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Especially, it's good to come to church worship. But you know, if we're not careful, we'll forget two years ago. You know, we'll take this church for granted. And we'll take the freedom to worship God for granted. And you know, the songs this morning are really geared towards the majesty and the, the sovereignty of God. And you know, what we were created to do is worship the Lord. And you know, the Bible says, forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but so much the more as we see the day approaching. I just probably butchered that verse all to pieces, (laughs) but you get the drift. The importance is on gathering together as believers. And if we can't worship God in here together... How are we ever going to worship him out there? And how are we ever going to be that witness that we need to be? I know I'm preaching this morning. I'm not the one preaching this morning. So I had, to, I had to get that plug in. But you pray for us as we sing this song. And I want you guys to really think about this song. It's something that's close to my heart. Preacher, he preached a message in the summer about what we, who we are as a church. And one of his messages was about the worship and about worshiping God. And that's what this song talks about. So I hope it's a blessing to you. Worship with the choir as they sing it this morning.
2: Let's give the choir a hand. That was fantastic. That was fantastic. I know they've been practicing every Sunday night now, and they keep getting better and better and better. But I, lo- I, love, I love all the songs, but that last song should be a reminder that when we come to a church like this, we shouldn't be spectators. Though, though they sounded wonderful, we should be worshiping Him in our hearts. I know, and listen, I know people worship different ways. Some people have different personalities. But the Bible says in, James, in John chapter 4 that we're to worship Him in spirit. That's our human spirit. And in truth. So don't, don't ever leave church without worshiping Him. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to think about many different things. The grocery list. Work tomorrow. Listen, none of those are worthy of our attention. He's worthy. So let's make sure we worship Him today. Uh, we, Brother Eric Chapman, our missionary to... Moldova, he is going to come preach for us today we sure appreciate him so you give him your undivided attention today we sure appreciate him miss stephanie so come preach to us brother hey nodding not sleeping nodding head nodding they like that and us like amens amen thank you thank brother, brother.
3: You. we well, you can turn to nehemiah chapter one well we are god's church amen we belong to him and I am very thankful to be a part of a church that is growing, that has the right emphasis on souls. I'm thankful for our pastor, our pastoral staff. Praise God for a choir. I always know I'm in the right place when there's a choir. And I'm sure when we, when we build again, we're going to have some place for a choir to sing up here. And I, I just love a choir, and I love the music of this church. Now, my family's here today. I, I don't know who made it. We've got sick grandkids I'm, just, I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but just raise your hand back here. These are kids that grew up on the mission field. Um, some of my daughters met their husbands at Bible school. My second daughter, her husband, um, his father's retired, but he built the largest Romanian-speaking church in the city of Chisinau, the capital of Moldova. So I'm very glad that he's here today and that uh, my daughter has a, a very good husband and a good Moldovan man there. But all my, all my boys are good, and I love them all. They, um, they took me out to dinner last night, and I, I bought them an expensive dinner, and I was very glad to do it. So, <laughs> But uh, anyway, uh, very thankful to be here. Uh, Pastor said he will try to be back here tonight, although I am preaching tonight. Don't get scared. Don't stay away. Uh, tonight, I'm going to talk more about missions than I do this morning. I'm kind of setting you up for it this morning. But... Um, <clears throat> I heard a story back in 1992. Um, I had just come back from California, church planning. I will tell you the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was try to start a church in California. Uh, I call California boot camp. Every missionary should have a boot camp. A lot of missionaries don't get a boot camp. That's why they don't make it. Good to have a couple failures before you get to the mission field. Uh, so my, I, I won't say California was a failure. People were saved. But I will tell you this. It was very, very difficult. You know, anytime I got discouraged as a missionary, my wife used to say, "Well, would you rather be in California?" I say, "No, I think I'll stick it out here," because in Moldova it was hard living but good ministry. California was good living, hard ministry, really hard. So, you know, Moldova, Moldova was a good place to, work, to 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 minister the word because people were hungry. But I heard a story in 1992. I'd just come back from California. I was in a I was in a church that uh, my wife and I were married in uh, in uh, in Pensacola, Florida. And um, they had advertised that they were taking a mission trip. This was just at the beginning of the opening up of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, to missions. And they were taking a mission trip to the city of Kiev. I really wanted to go on that mission trip, but I just didn't have the money. I was also making preparation to start a church in my home state of Ohio. Yeah, and like I mentioned earlier in the morning service... I was probably going to go start a church in Ohio next to a church of a 1,000 somewhere. I don't know why I was thinking Ohio. It's just all my good memories from, were from Ohio. And, and probably I was born in West Virginia, but I didn't have that many memories in West Virginia. But um, I'm making plans to go start a church in Ohio. My friends are taking a mission trip. When they got back, one of my really good friends, a guy I really clicked with, said he wanted to take me out and share with, what, share with me what happened while they were in Kiev. Now, I'm telling you this story because this is a story that changed my direction in life, and I might just say it's a story that changed my life. Our church was located on Highway 29 in Pensacola. Uh, We met at a Wendy's right near Pensacola Christian College, and um, I don't know if the place is significant or not, but uh, that Wendy's is still there, and we sat at a table not much bigger than this podium here. And um, he sat there... And I I remember what he ordered. He ordered a bowl of chili. I don't know what I got, but he got a bowl of chili. And the reason I remember that is because about halfway through his talk to me, I saw a teardrop drop into the chili, and he never touched it. He told me this story over two hours about how in the Ukraine, people were so hungry for the gospel that you could preach on the street, and people would kneel right there on the street, weeping and crying and accepting the Lord back in 1992. And this story, I was just engrossed in the story he was telling about his trip and all the things that they saw on his trip. But the reason I'm telling you about that is because at the end of that, and believe me, my heart is touched beyond belief. At the end of that tale, he leaned across that table and he said, Eric, we've got to get missionaries over there. We've got to get thousands upon thousands of missionaries to the former Soviet Union. And folks, we didn't send enough missionaries to the former Soviet Union. I'll tell you that right now. We did not send enough. But then he looked at me, and he said, Eric, you've been to Bible school, haven't you? Yeah. You've got a master's degree, don't you? Now, at that point, I knew where this conversation was going, and it was not going in the direction I wanted it to go. He says, you've started churches before. Yeah. And he leaned across that table, and he put his finger right in the middle of my chest like this. And he said, why don't you go? You could go. Even if you only went for a few years, it would make a difference. You could go. I'll help you. I'll support you. I'll do anything I can to help you get there. And I probably cleared my throat like I just did. And I said, no, no, I've got plans for God, but not missions. Not missions. And we'll talk more about that tonight. But, you know, I couldn't think about anything else after that. I couldn't, I couldn't hardly pray for Ohio. All I could think about was going to Moldova. I went home and I told my wife about what Rick, the brother, brother's name was Rick, what Rick had told me, but I told her everything except the part about, you could go, Eric. You could do it. I didn't tell her that part. I mean, nobody wants to scare their wife, right? Well, that's kind of what happens in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah, He's working in the Babylonian Persian Empire. He's in the capital. Nehemiah has a good job working in the government, essentially. He's probably got a big house. He's probably got a lot of money. His kids probably go to the best schools, as do most of the Hebrew children that are still in captivity, because they're really not in captivity anymore. So what happens in verse 2? Hananiah, one of the brethren, came, and, he, and certain men of, the, of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now Nehemiah is very interested in what's going on in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of God's world. Jerusalem is God's city. So he's very interested in it. He wants to know what's happened. And they said to me in verse 3, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the providence are in great affliction and reproach. And the walls of Jerusalem also are broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now we need to understand something here. The people are in great affliction because there is no longer a Jewish nation in Jerusalem or in what we call Israel. There is no Jewish nation there when the Babylonians captured them, they took most of them away, leaving a remnant. And then they brought people from other nations they had conquered, and they brought them to Jerusalem and that area of Israel. So what's going on there? When Ezra goes back before to build the temple, he finds a situation where the Jewish people in Jerusalem and are surrounding Jerusalem are in the minority. They are being persecuted by the people and the gods of those people who are in that area now. When you say that the walls are broken down and the gates are burnt with fire, there is no security, there really is no city, and the city is being reduced to a village, and it won't be long, it will be in rubble, and 2,000 years later people will come and dig it up and say, this used to be Jerusalem. That's, the, that's where the city is going. Like many cities of the Middle East and of that part of the world that had been defeated in battle, eventually the city comes down to nothing and it's covered over with dust. And that's where Jerusalem is. They are in the process of being dwindled to nothing. And Nehemiah seems to have a sense that that's true as we read the rest of the passage. In verse 4, And when it came to pass, when I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Can you imagine? He's broken by hearing this news. He's just broken. See, he could have gone home. He could have gone back. A lot of people went with Ezra, but not very many. I understand from my study about 50,000 people went back with Ezra out of about 2,500,000 Jews that are scattered in in the Babylonian Persian area. I don't know what percentage that is. Maybe somebody can figure it out, but it's not very many went back. They could have gone back. Why did they not go back? Life's just too good to go back. It'll just be too hard to go back. We have good jobs. We have lots of money. You know why it's so difficult for me to preach to Americans? We're just too rich. When I preach in Africa, and I preach like I'm preaching to you, people fall on their face, and they not just repent, they dedicate themselves to the service of God. When I went to Moldova in 1993, people were broken, and orthodox people, particularly elderly women, were praying that God would send somebody to help them and to give them the Word of God. They didn't know it was going to be a Baptist boy with no talent from Akron, Ohio who couldn't even preach. But they were praying for somebody. That's why it's important you hear my whole story today. I hope you'll come back tonight and hear it. Because when you hear it, you will find out that God takes average, ordinary people and He uses them for His glory. There isn't one of you here who's born again that God cannot use you. He may not use you like Nehemiah. God certainly didn't use me like He used Nehemiah. He may not use you like He used Eric Chapman in Moldova and Malawi and Central Asia and wherever else God calls me before my days are over. But God can certainly use you here in Simpsonville. God can certainly use you to reach your family and to reach the people at work and to help this church through prayer and revival to bring about the changing of of not only Simpsonville but Greenville and perhaps we can reach all of South Carolina. Listen, somebody somewhere is going to spark revival in this country if we're at the end of days. God never brings us to the end of days without giving us a chance to repent. Why, maybe, just maybe it's in this church here, Bible Baptist of Simpsonville, that will be the spark. It's certainly been a spark around the COVID era. A lot of you are here. I went back to the mission field for a year, and I come back, and we need name tags all over again because I don't know anyone. You know? <laughs> At least you can call me the missionary. I don't know what to call some of you. Except, hey, brother. Pastor talked about that, didn't he? Brother. <laughs> you know, but I'm trying to learn names. Brother David, I'm trying to learn names. No, Brother David, I think, was in the last service. I was looking for him a second ago. Anyway, brothers and sisters, God can use us, but Nehemiah and his people decided that they would rather have the riches of Babylon, the riches of the Persian Empire, over serving God. And I believe this is what's breaking, beginning to break the heart of Nehemiah, and you will see as he prays that I think I'm right about this. Verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, and great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love Him, and observe His commandments, let thine ear now be attentive and thy eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, One thing I want to comment here. Have you ever felt like your prayers weren't being heard? I have. I've had times I didn't think my prayers were being heard. Nehemiah has been praying. Now, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's about three to four months involved here. I imagine there were days Nehemiah says, Lord, hear me. Lord, hear me. Lord, hear me. The Lord's hearing him. But he's not getting the answer he wants yet. All right? I think we need to just keep praying. If our loved ones are lost, if the people at work are lost, we need to just keep praying. God is hearing. Lost my place, folks. Here I am. Oh, yeah. I pray thee, verse 6, I pray thee, Now, day and night, for the children of Israel, for thy servant, and confess the sin of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments that thou commandest thy servant Moses. Now, let's stop here and let's think about what sin he's talking about. You know, when I first read that, I thought it must be the sin before the captivity. But I don't believe it is. I believe it's the sin that they did not go back to Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem to these people? To these Hebrews? What is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the place where the temple is supposed to be. Jerusalem is the place where they're supposed to worship. Jerusalem is the place where they're supposed to sacrifice. We understand better what those sacrifices meant than even they did. These sacrifices meant that there was coming a day when there would be a final sacrifice for sin... The son of the living God. And this sacrifice for sin would be the last sacrifice for sin. In the meantime, we will keep remembering that the day is coming through the sacrifices of animals. And that is supposed to take place at the temple in Jerusalem. And they are 800 miles from Jerusalem. And they have never gone home. The sin he's talking about is we have neglected the commandments of God because God said you are to go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He was a proselyte. He wasn't even a blooded Jew. He was a proselyte. And he went to Jerusalem every year for the sacrifices. This is what they're supposed to do. This is the sin of the people. This is, how, this is what's going on. This is what he's confessing. I grew up in one of the largest churches in America back in the 70s. We used to run about 7,000 people. That means we were a megachurch before there were megachurches. All right? We were a very large church. My pastor didn't like the idea of a mega church, so he started a church 20 miles this way, 20 miles this way, 20 miles—I mean, every direction. Okay, we're in Akron. He's up in Cleveland. We're down in Canton. We're everywhere. A hundred churches are contributed to the church I grew up in. But if you went to my church today, the church I grew up in, you can Google it, Akron Baptist Temple. Google it sometime. You will find that that building's been op- been empty for years. The windows are broken. The doors are broken, and if you walk through there today, expect to be attacked and mugged because it's full of heroin addicts, fentanyl addicts, and it's the only place they have to sleep. They say they're going to tear the building down. Now, that's just a building from a church The people have scattered. They are attending other churches. But that's an example of what can happen if, some, if we turn our back on God. I hesitate to say that because somebody from that church might hear me and might object, but it's true. 4,500 churches closed their doors in America last year. 4,500 churches. And those are the statistics from three of the largest denominations. That doesn't even include the smaller independent groups. What's happening? Well, some people say we're becoming awoke. The wokeness, as Americans describe it today in the media, is nothing more but diving into a black hole of darkness. The only wokeness there is in this world is opening your eyes to God and seeing Jesus and the light that is in Jesus Christ. But the wokeness movement is out there today and churches are becoming awoke. They're not preaching the gospel. They don't care about Jesus Christ anymore. They have changed the way they think about God. That's why we need to be thankful for this church. And we need to understand that each and every one of us is responsible for the gospel. It's just my opinion. You may disagree with me. But I believe that all spiritual darkness, all spiritual warfare is about the gospel. It's about stopping us from preaching it or somebody else from hearing it. Why would the devil's... Why would the governments of the world and why would the satanic forces want us to get into a nuclear war? Because they would kill 2 billion people and deprive God of His children. Spiritual warfare is going on in every government in this world. Don't get me started on that. It's sad. Because I'm going into a war zone. But here... Is Nehemiah recognizing that they should have gone home, they should have gone back to Jerusalem, but they didn't because of money? Verse seven: We have dealt very, very corruptly against thee, and have not kept thy commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If he transgress, I will scatter you abroad. Among the nations. Now Nehemiah is involved in that scattering. He knows what that is, because that's where he is right now. He understands that. They have sinned, they have been scattered. But verse nine. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments, and do them, though they were of of you cast out into the uttermost parts of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and I will return them unto the place. That I, that I have chosen to set my name there. That's Jerusalem, by the way. Now, me and Maya doesn't have the experience of knowing what will happen if he turns around and goes to Jerusalem. But since he's quoting Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 30, he understands this. If one thing is true, we are scattered to the wind. We are scattered among the nations. The other thing must be true if we repent and we come back to God and we turn to God. God will gather us again unto his holy place. Of course, that's what's going on in the nations today. The nations that knew God, we're not scattered among the nations yet. Maybe we never will be. But we're certainly not, been, we're certainly not in the place in the house of God. Many of the young people I grew up with are no longer in church. Some of you who are my age will know that many of the people that we grew up with may not have attended church or may not be in church. Many people are simply discouraged and are not, are not going back to the house of God. But I will say this much is what I believe. I believe that there is a movement today among young people that they are searching for something. If we are the right kind of church and the right kind of people, I honestly believe that they will seek us out and they will find us. And in many cases, we will seek them out and find them. That is the purpose of our outreach program here. People are looking for God today. I believe that's part of the end time scenario. You should be in this Sunday school class on Sunday. We're talking about that here. And if you're in one of the other classes, that's okay, too. I guess I shouldn't say it that way. But if you're not in a Sunday school class, you should start here. Because we're talking about what's going on in the end times. Not that anybody really knows totally what's going on at the end times, but what we do know, and what I, let me say what I know. As a historian, as somebody who loves history, every time we've on the, been on the verge of a disaster in America, God has sent a revival. And I'm not saying he has sent it yet. Possibly, I don't know. I don't criticize when somebody says they're in revival. But God always sends a revival. He sends an awakening. In 1859, New York City, a few laymen got together and said, we need to pray. Our country's on the verge of tearing itself apart. And that turned into tens of thousands of people gathering for prayer at their lunch hour in New York City. That turned into a revival. That turned into tens if not hundreds of thousands of people being saved. And they've estimated that many of the boys from the north who were killed in in the Civil War, many of them had gotten saved in that revival in 59. We are on the verge of something in this country, as bad as it's getting, on the verge of something great happening. And we need to be on the tip of the spear here. Nehemiah is an example of how that can happen. It doesn't take very many of us to become like Nehemiah to where things begin to change, as we'll see here in a moment. Now, verse 10. Now these are the servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attended to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer, the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. And I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Who is the man? The king. See, Nehemiah, he's already made up his mind what he's going to do. He's already made up his mind. He's going to find a way. As the cupbearer, close to the king, he's going to find a way to talk to the king. He's going to find a way. And the cupbearer, that's an important position in those days because people were always trying to poison the king. And the cupbearer was responsible to make sure that the king and his family were safe, particularly in the area of food and drink. If somebody in the king's household died, the first one to lose their head, if it was because of drink, the first one to lose their head was the cupbearer. So the cupbearer was expendable, wasn't he? I won't say he's an average guy like most of us, but he's certainly a trusted godly man with a very nice income. But he's made up his mind that God needs to touch the heart of the king because he has a plan and he has a purpose and he knows what he's doing. I told you that I felt that I was going to start a church in Ohio. Didn't I tell you that? I did tell you that. It's about a month after I talked to my friend about what was going on in the Ukraine. And I'm following my plan right now. You understand that. By going to Ohio to meet with the committee from... The group that my former church was a part of, it was called the Baptist Bible Fellowship, the BBF. Very large, independent Baptist fellowship group at that time. And my church, and my pastor, is the largest church in the group. And I've already talked to these guys on the phone, and they've assured me that my paperwork has been approved, and that I am accepted as a church planter with the Baptist Bible Fellowship. And um, so I'm going up to meet with these men in New Philadelphia, Ohio. Uh, you come off 77 into New Philadelphia. There's a Bob Evans there. It's still there to this day. And that's where we were meeting. Now on the drive up, my wife and I are talking. And two things happened. My wife said to me, you know, see, we're not talking about starting a church in Ohio. What do you think we're talking about? We're talking about missions in Eastern Europe. Because that's on both of our minds. My wife says to me, don't you think that we could be missionaries over there? In, and she said, the Ukraine, even though we ended up in Moldova, which is right next door. You think we could be missionaries there? And I said,
1: huh,
3: I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking the same thing. <laughs> but I'm thinking, if God's working in my wife's heart like this, I wonder what God's trying to tell me. So I said a prayer in my heart and on the drive. I said, Lord, if it's your will... Find a way of closing the door in Ohio and I will try to step through the door in Eastern Europe. I will try. And then I keep, you know, you're wrestling. You ever wrestle with yourself, Brother Lin, when I'm wrestling? I'm saying, but there's no way that door is going to be closed. All right? But Lord, if it is, I'm going I'm I'm to make it a, my mission in life to find, make sure that this is the will of God for me to go as a missionary. Now, I'm about 33 years of age at this time, okay? And I get up to the Bob Evans in New Philadelphia. My family's going to stay in the car. I'm supposed to meet with three men on the committee. I go in. I sit down in the booth with one guy. He's about my age. He's a pastor in the area of New Philadelphia, Ohio. And I ask where the other two guys was. And he says, yeah, i got to talk to you about that. Do you see where this is going, don't you? Because I'm a missionary. You see where this is going. You know, it's already been written. But he said... We got to talking last night, and one of the guys pointed out that you didn't go to our school in Springfield, Missouri. And I, no, it's on my application. I went to the school in Greenville, you know. And he says, yeah, but that bothered them. And I tried to call you. Well, yeah, you called me after I left. Didn't have cell phones in those days. Didn't have email. And uh, he said, we've just decided we can't accept you based on the fact you didn't go to our Springfield school. Now, I have to admit that if that had happened a few months earlier, I would have been devastated. I might have been a bitter man for life. I don't know. But I smiled at him and I said, okay. And then he asked me, are you all right? I don't know what expression I had on my face. How could you see your old face, right? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, God's been talking to me about doing something else anyway. And I accept accept this. Tell the other men I appreciate it. By the way, those other two guys who didn't show up for the meeting, they both supported me as a missionary, even though I didn't go to the right school. (laughs) So I appreciated that about them. They still support me, by the way, to this day. Their churches do. You know, that's put us on the direction. That closed one door and opened another door. You know what Nehemiah is waiting for in chapter 2? He's waiting for, for God to close the one door so he can walk through the other door. And he has to walk through much more than I had to walk through. I had to walk through a committee that didn't like where I went to school. No big deal. He has to walk from the place of where the king sits and his wife. We'll just look at it real quickly. we just have a couple of minutes. In chapter 2, verse 1, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, this is about three months after he heard the other news. In the twelfth year of Atarexes, the king, that wine was before him, and I I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. Therefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I was sore afraid. You know, first time I read that, I thought he was afraid because... You're not supposed to be sad in front of the king and then the king can dismiss you and bad things can happen if you're sad before the king because the king wants everybody, like a jester, very happy around him. And uh, I thought that was the case, but no, I don't think that's the case. I think the king, he's about to talk to the king about what he thinks God wants him to do and he's trying to, and he's just afraid the king's going to reject it. I think that's what he's really afraid of. I don't think he cares if the king kills him or not. I don't think that's Nehemiah at this point. I think he's just afraid that maybe he'll be rejected. And said, I, and, and said I to the king, "Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father' sepulchre lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it please the king, if the servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah." The city of my father's sepulcher, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, and the queen sitting by him, For how long will your journey be, and when wilt thou return? Now that sounds pretty positive to me. When will you come back? You know, hard, good cupbearers are hard to find. When are you coming back here, uh, Nehemiah? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. If we go on and we finish the story, What happens? The king not only sends him, but he sends him with a, with a company of troops. The king not only sends him, but he sends him with letters. He allows him to take trees from the forest to build the walls of the city. The king gives him everything he needs, makes every provision. What was God doing? God was preparing the way. is concerned and praying, and the king's being prepared to let Nehemiah go. And we find that it's not easy. You think it was easy going to Moldova in 1993 with four little children? they were still very soviet we didn't even speak we didn't even speak russian well yet we took some russian classes but we didn't speak russian i will tell you tonight what god did i will tell you something supernatural tonight if you come back something that you probably will never hear from another missionary that happened to me personally tonight but i can't tell it now there's no time but they go through battles here they go through tribulation Nehemiah is on every turn They're trying to stop him We find that men are standing there with a sword Ready to draw it And others are are, are using the trowel Building the walls Even with the letters of the king But by the time we get over to chapter 8 And the pastor preached on it So I don't have to say much about it But by the time we get over to chapter 8 The walls are built The city has been restored The place of God is going to remain The city of God until this day And much will happen there, including the coming of Messiah dying on the cross, but will change the world forever. Because one man, the cupbearer of the king, got a burden and wept and cried and fasted and prayed and couldn't stop praying and was willing to face death even if the king chopped his head off. I am going to talk to the king, whatever it takes. I'm going to be God's man in this case. And what we need today in Simpsonville, what we need at Bible Baptist is a bunch of Nehemiahs that will say, I'll be God's man. I will do what God wants me to do. Whatever it takes, God, I say yes to you. I'll do it. Eric Chapman did it. I can do it. Eric Chapman's an average guy. I can do it. You know what job I had before I I became a missionary? I ran a janitorial company. Now, I admit I was really good at it. Okay? I was good at it. I could have bought the company. I could have made a lot of money doing stuff like that. And I'm telling you, I said yes to God about something else. And God prepared me for 10 years before I made, I talked to that man in 1992, before I went up to New Philadelphia, Ohio. God prepared me for 10 years. You don't think God hasn't been preparing Nehemiah? You don't think God hasn't put you in this church and he's been preparing you for what's coming? Listen, we are moving toward the end of the age. We are at least moving toward the end of the American age as we knew it. It is time we recognize it, accept it, and say, I'm giving myself to Jesus, come what may. I believe today more than any time in my life that revival is going to come to America, an awakening is going to come, and if God's people are ready, it will be glorious. Why not here? Why not at our assembly? God has put us here for a reason. Because when I came to this church at the beginning of covid We were down. Where's that building at? From this this way, (laughs) I can't remember. Down this way, and there wasn't a hundred of us in the building when I was there. And now look, we've had two services. More at this service than the last, but we have two services. We're about to do something big here. And it's not about building buildings; it's about us. This is not the church; we are the church. It is about us reaching this community, reaching South Carolina reaching the United States, and ultimately reaching the world.